an entire Enlightenment strike team wiped out? How is this possible? Abbot Cadilius winces. It is never an enviable task bringing bad news to the Lord Inquisitor, and this is particularly bad news. There is every risk of him ending up at the wrong end of an inquisitorial poker unless he handles this exchange particularly deftly. It is an unspeakable crime against Droom, Your Holiness, one that will incur the swiftest and deadliest retribution once the perpetrators are identified. You mean you don't even know who did it? Cadilius swallows. This part was always going to be tricky. Even as we speak, agents of the Enlightenment are engaged in robust inquiries, Your Holiness. We are confident that... The Lord Inquisitor, barely able to suppress his rage, hisses, Remind me, Cadilius, what is it we do here? What is it that we seek? Cadilius feels sweat prickle at the nape of his neck. He has heard the Lord Inquisitor pursue this line of questioning before, and the last respondent did not fare well. He must do better. He must seize back the initiative. He meets the Lord Inquisitor's eyes, and a distant part of him registers that the man is quite, quite mad. An even more distant part, an echo of the innocent child Cadilius once was, whispers, takes one to no one. We seek knowledge, Your Holiness. There can be no higher calling, and where our secret brethren pursue our holy quest through the written word, we of the Doom's Inquisition must choose more direct methods to see to the heart of things. The body of information must be autopsied, the lies and prevarication cut away until only the truth, gleaming and pure, remains. At present, Your Holiness, our inquiries are ongoing, but I do not think it premature to inform you that we have identified two strong leads. First, we believe that we were betrayed by the Doom singer, Heart of Snow. This is not so surprising. We do the risks of working with his type. Doomsingers are mercurial. And the second? The abbot breathes a sigh of relief, though he is careful not to let it show. Treacherous waters have been successfully navigated, but it is never wise to let one's guard down in the presence of the Lord Inquisitor. We believe the second to be agents of a minor clandestine organization, Your Holiness little more than street criminals, though, if our intelligence is to be believed, they are at the centre of a number of recent high-profile incidents. They call themselves The Web. An actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning the following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues.
last time on The Lone Adventurer. The web recuperated after completing three punishing missions, but the spider was not done. Before they knew it, they were back out on the streets, dodging bluecoat patrols in order to break into the shipping company responsible for transporting infernal powder to the armada massed beneath conflict. They gathered limited information before being forced to flee, but in sabotaging the hauler Percheron, they discovered more. The House of Whispers was stealing from the Unseen's powder supply. Focus on the job at hand. The spider is just as intrigued as the rest of them by the revelation that Digby, of all people, is involved in stealing from the Unseen. But they have more pressing concerns right now, and their time is running out. Concerns like neutralising the Unseen supply depots under cover of darkness. First this one, and then the one containing a couple of hundred barrels of very high explosives. Sallow, anything to report? The lanky saboteur, hunched in his greatcoat, shrugs. No blues in sight, but plenty of folks guarding the warehouse. Three patrols of two walking the perimeter. Trace counted four up top, and Crater reckoned there's a lookout stationed in those two buildings across the way, too. The spider crunches the variables, works the angles, and sketches out their path in. Crater, I need you to take out this lookout nice and quiet. With them down, it'll open up a blind spot between these two patrols that should give us enough time to reach this window undetected. Trace, you'll lead us in. Sallow, you'll have 30 seconds to cut through that glass and get the window open, no more. That will give the rest of us just enough time to get in and get the window closed again before this patrol comes back around the corner. Then we pour oil, set the fuse timers, and get out before anyone realises anything is wrong. Any questions? Fifteen minutes later, the team are inside the warehouse, hearts thumping, crouching in the dark behind a stack of old crates, straining their ears for any sign of commotion outside. There are none. Nice work, everyone, the spider whispers. We appear to have made it in undetected. Next up should be the easy part. We set up our fire starters, light the fuses and get the hell out. Sallow, fuses? The saboteur grins and holds up a fistful of detonating cords. The spider nods. Good. Crater, lamp oil. Alphonse blinks and looks around at the others. What, me? I thought Trace was bringing in the oil. Trace bristles. Me? Why would you think I was bringing it? You're supposed to be the team Cartos, you lubbox. You call it a lubbox? Crater growls, squaring up to Trace. Oh, I've put up with just about enough of your shit, you scrawny git. That's enough, both of you, the spider hisses. And keep the damn noise down. Are you seriously telling me we've broken in here without the one thing we need to get the job done? Hell's teeth! Everyone just shut the hell up for a moment. Give me a minute to think. But she is not afforded that luxury. Before she can come up with a backup plan, voices are heard approaching the main warehouse doors. Everyone freezes, crouching lower behind the crates as chains rattle, a key turns in a padlock, and the doors scrape slowly open. Light from several hooded lanterns throw long shadows into the large wooden building, and a score or more of armed thugs enter the warehouse. Crater turns to the spider and whispers, So, was this part of the plan?
You may be wondering where that opening scene came from, and if not, well, I'm afraid that's too bad, because I'm going to tell you anyway. I happened to look back at episode 16 of season 1 recently, and noticed that that was the episode where we stepped away from Mina's story for the first time and got our first introduction to the web. That introduction, made during the pre credit sequence, came about as the result of a mythic scene interrupt event, and as it turned out, it took me down a whole new storytelling path. Now that I'm not using Mythic, I no longer have the scene interrupt mechanic as part of my normal gameplay toolkit, and that's a shame, because as that little scene in Season 1 demonstrated, this sort of unpredictable change in the scene focus can really take the story in fun and interesting new directions. In hindsight, I think it's one of the best parts of the Mythic engine, and one I've missed the most in Series 2. That, and the way that mythic events tie so neatly into the established fiction, linking, as they do, to existing plot threads or NPCs. Of course, there's nothing preventing me from taking aspects of mythic and overlapping them onto my existing solo engine. And in fact, I've done almost exactly that. In my set of oracles, I have one called the Scene Start Oracle, which states, envisage the scene, choose a probability, and ask, does the scene start as expected? but I realise I've been very inconsistent in applying this to the start of each scene, and it's also true that my oracle lacks the depth of the mythic version. I may revisit all this at some point soon and see what I can do to address this, but for now, let's talk about the intro scene to this chapter. Well, actually no, hold on just a second. To talk about the intro scene, there's something else I need to talk about first. I don't know about you, but I am starting to find the number of dangling plot threads, NPCs and interested parties just a little overwhelming at the moment. I'm starting to run the risk of forgetting aspects of my own plot. And this is something that can easily happen in a solo RPG, as the story just kind of spreads out organically with each new random story development. The trick, in order to prevent that spread from feeling too random or growing too far out of control, is to track those threads, and where the opportunity arises, to tie those threads together. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the mythic plot thread and NPC mechanic is a great way of managing that, but it's not the only tool that can be used. As is increasingly my want at the moment, I was leafing through Starforged recently, and near the back I came across a section called More Oracle Options. This section has two great little oracle ideas that can be applied to any solo game, the Oracle Array and the Campaign Elements Oracle. And in order to impose a bit of order on my game, I've decided to give the latter of those two a whirl. Here's what Starforged has to say about it. A Campaign Elements Oracle is a handcrafted table of story ingredients specific to your campaign. When you encounter or introduce an open-ended situation, and you want to know who or what is involved, or how it connects to something already established in your story, roll on your Campaign Elements Oracle to learn the answer. Starforged suggests creating a table with the following entries. 1. Narrative theme or motif. 2. Ongoing situations or conflicts. 2. Factions or cultural influences. 1. Background vow, that's something that's specific to the Starforged ruleset. One important item or vehicle, one important location, one important connection or NPC, and one significant trouble. 
The Starforge rulebook also suggests that you can use subtables. So I might want to create a faction or an NPC subtable, for example, as this game is quite well established and has a pretty large cast at this point. So I've taken that framework and then built my own campaign elements oracle, along with a series of subtables for NPCs, factions, locations, and so on. And it is with this new story randomizer tool that I created the teaser scene. I made a roll which came up as faction, and so I rolled on the faction subtable, and that gave me Seekers of Droom, and then I made a follow up roll on the action theme and description focus oracles, and that gave me Locate Faction and Contested World. With those prompts in mind, I started writing, and bingo, one intro scene, and yet more trouble for our crew. Now, I could have asked my oracle more questions to determine who those NPCs were, or use the canoe personality generator to find out a bit more about those NPCs, but in this case, I had a pretty clear idea for the scene, and so I just went with it. A good principle is not to use an oracle if you don't need to. Well, I've rambled on for far longer than I should have. Let's get back to the story, and I'll give a brief roundup of the mechanics behind both that last scene and the next one, the next time we peer behind the curtain. Onwards. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Get that wagon in here and unload it. Be sharp about it. A burly figure holding up a lantern in one hand and brandishing a cudgel in the other, directs the operations as a horse-drawn wagon is led into the warehouse. Even from this distance, it is obvious what it is carrying. Barrels. The foreman is clearly not a patient man. Get a bleeding move on your laggards. We may have paid off the blues, but there's no sense in asking for trouble. Join us, get them bloody doors shut, and if any of you halfwits so much as breathe funny on them barrels, you'll be feeling the thick end of his stick. The back behind the stack of crates, the most infamous crew in the city, the notorious web, cower. The spider is just about at the end of her tether. She has been holding the crew together all this time, with no one to hold her together but her own drive and purpose, and even she is feeling the strain. No, this is not part of the sodding plan, she whispers at Crater. Shut up and let me think. The foreman and his team have spread out, fetching planks and ropes as they start the delicate process of unloading the wagon. At this rate, it's only a matter of time before someone stumbles across them. The spider risks a quick peek around the crates, then ducks quickly back. It looks like there are ten barrels on the wagon. That could work. She glances at the warehouse walls, guessing at their thickness, trying to estimate the impact, though she has to admit to herself this is not her forte. It's going to be one hell of a gamble. But these days, when isn't it? And frankly, it's better than just waiting here for someone to come and trip over them. She pulls the team close in for a huddle and whispers, Right, this is what we're going to do. Clayton Creed sighs. He was made for better than this. He knows it in his bones. 
But here he is, reduced to skulking about in a warehouse at night, lumbered with a bunch of morons who are more than capable of blowing them all sky-high through sheer stupidity. And all at the behest of a seriously creepy employer, who Clayton suspects would kill him as soon as look at him. How has he fallen this far? A promising military career cut short by that arsehole of a corporal. Then a string of successively worse and worse jobs, each in turn cut short by some officious, interfering busybody. Who cares if he has a few drinks? Misses the odd day, skims a little off the top. Why make such a drama out of it? And now, this. Reduced to basically nothing more than a glorified street thug. It's not right. When this job is done, he decides, that's it. He's out of this racket and turning over a new leaf. It's like his mum told him on her deathbed, there's always time to make a change. There's a whooshing noise behind him, and he turns to follow a trail of multicoloured sparks arcing up and over his crew. Then they burst into a coruscating pattern of kaleidoscopic light, a scattering of pristine snow drifting down over all of them, and Clayton is captivated, staring up open-mouthed at the sheer, shimmering beauty of it. He is dimly aware of voices, of figures moving in the darkness, but the light show above is too perfect to ignore. Distantly, someone calls, Out the window, all of you! And a moment later, You're up, Krita, don't miss! Clayton has a nagging sense that he probably ought to be paying more attention to what is going on over there. Though his men continue to gaze upwards, slack-jawed and stupid, he drags his gaze away. There's someone at the window, pointing at him. No, not at him, at the wagon. And not pointing, but aiming. Wait, aiming? Is that a pistol? He raises his hands in horror, calling out a warning just as the muzzle flashes. There's a sudden, instant, blinding light and deafening noise. And then Clayton's time is up. So, let's back up a bit and run through the mechanics that created the last couple of scenes. First, we had a group survey role, led by Sallow, and that was a straight success across the board. He didn't even pick up any stress. From there, the team made a group prowl role to sneak into the warehouse, and, again, they managed another straight success. And then, it was Sallow's turn to take an action role, this time a wreck role aided by Crater. Time to burn this place to the ground and move that mission clock on, right? Listen, I know it's just the dice at work, but if I were the suspicious type, I'd be taking a long, hard look at Sallow right about now. Seriously, things have not been going well for our twitchy saboteur of late. Following that success with consequence at the end of Chapter 14 that introduced his betrayal of the team to Lord Tortimus, he has failed a couple of critical roles with significant implications. First, he made a tinker roll last chapter that resulted in a safe blowing up and a ton of unwanted attention from the Bluecoats. And now, this chapter, he has failed that wreck roll to burn down the warehouse. The consequences of that failure were pretty significant. As it was a straight failure, I decided to roll two consequences, and the first was lose an opportunity, new approach needed to try again. That's what led to the oil being left behind. Now, in fairness to Sallow, it did turn out that Crater was to blame for that one. 
Crater had assisted Sallow on the roll, and so I rolled randomly to see which of them had screwed up. But still. But it was the other consequence that really messed things up. For that one, I rolled Mark Clock Segments. And the obvious danger clock to introduce at this point was Discovery. And the obvious reason for a Discovery clock was that a whole load of goons had just rocked up. And in turn, the obvious reason for a whole load of goons rocking up to the Unseen's Infernal Powder Storage Depot was... Well, you get the idea. I had no desire to have my heavily outnumbered team get into a scrap with these newcomers, and so I had Sallow make a setup roll to stun the enemy, using Tinker and the Trance Powder listed on his character sheet. It seemed fair to make this roll against a desperate position, and to Sallow's credit, this time he nailed it. Straight to success. This setup role was important because rather than moving the mission clock along, it was intended to let me move the position down one to risky. Which meant that when Crater took a wreck action to fire a pistol, noted down on his character sheet, at one of the barrels of powder, he wasn't doing it against a desperate position. Remember, the consequences of failure in this game scale with the position the attempt is made against, so if Crater fails that role under these circumstances, well, the consequences of that could have been pretty dire. Now, we'll find out how that role went shortly, but before we get back to the action, I wanted to talk about the perspective shift, that stepping away from my crew and into the POV of an NPC. There were a couple of reasons for doing it. One was a storytelling device intended to keep the outcome of the scene and the fate of my crew ambiguous. Another was a desire to humanise the opposition a little bit. There is a tendency, in action and adventure games like this one, to treat the opposition as disposable mooks. The TV Tropes site describes mooks as a slang term for the hordes of standard-issue disposable bad guys who the hero mows down with utter impunity and complete disregard. You can call them baddies, goons, scrubs, drones, small fry, flunkies, pawns, toadies, grunts, minions, lackeys, underlings, swarmers, henchperson, popcorn enemies, foot soldiers and cannon fodder whatever. The actual term mook, by the way, is thought to come from Hong Kong cinema, and takes its name from the mook jong, the wooden training dummies used in Wing Chun, whose only function is to get hit. So, we got a brief glimpse into the inner workings of Clayton Creed, before those workings went splat. Which, in the process, proved the case made by the late lamented Sir Terry Pratchett. Build a man a fire, and he'll be warm for a day. Set a man on fire, and he'll be warm for the rest of his life. The last reason for making that change in viewpoint was to demonstrate the freedom you have as a solo RPG player. You have the freedom to inhabit any character in your world if you so desire. As both the player and the GM, you have the complete freedom to jump from person to person, from PC to NPC, from protagonist to antagonist. And that, potentially, opens up interesting narrative possibilities. Because, as I mentioned back in Series 1, Chapter 13, no one believes they're the bad guy. We are all the heroes of our own stories, without realising we are probably the villain in someone else's. As Billy Connolly so wisely said, before you judge a man, walk a mile in his shoes. After that, who cares? He's a mile away, and you've got his shoes. Time for one last scene, I think. Not bad, Crater, 
Beatrice grins as the crew slip through the city streets. At the horizon, the eastern sky is just beginning to lighten. Dawn can be no more than an hour away. Behind them, the sky is equally bright, glowing orange as the ruins of the warehouse burn. Smoke spirals up into the night sky. Not bad at all, the spider agrees. That went pretty smoothly, all things considered. She can't quite believe that the blast that destroyed the warehouse didn't take them all with it, but she's long since learned to accept good fortune with grace when it comes her way. And, of course, it never hurts to have others think you know what you're doing, even when you're winging it like crazy. Just one more strike to make, and then our night's work is done. Just time enough, I think. This is the tricky one, though. There were only ten barrels of powder in that last warehouse, and you saw the damage they did. Trace, you estimated around 200 barrels in the next one? Maybe more, right? That means detonation is not an option, unless we're comfortable taking out half the docks and ourselves in the process. Which, for the record, I'm not. So, we're going to need to take a different approach. By the time they've taken up position in the top of an old bell tower, dawn is fast approaching. The air is mild. It promises to be a beautiful day. But as expected, the warehouse is swarming with unseen thugs who are not even bothering to conceal their weapons. Bloody hell, Spider! Have you seen how many of them there are down there? Crater grumbles, lowering Trace's spyglass. We'd have a hard time getting through that lot if we had an army on our side, which, last time I checked, we don't. Shit! Are those ballistas up on the roof? Ballistae, the spider corrects him. And you're right, the warehouse is very well defended. Direct or even surreptitious assaults are likely doomed to failure. And even if we did break in, what then? No, this is going to take a more delicate touch. Um, spider? Sello tugs at her sleeve. You might want to see this. He's pointing, not at the warehouse, but up at the sky in the opposite direction. There, flying in close formation, are a group of six skyships, closing in fast on the centre of the city. Trace has already snatched her spyglass back from Crater. The Imperial military, drop ships by the look of it. Where are they going? She follows their trajectory and her eyes go wide. Wordlessly she points and the others see what she sees. The very centre of the city stands the Dominarian, palace of the Arch-Dominar of Kairos, its marble spires towering over every other building in the city. It represents the very heart of imperial power, a physical embodiment of the Empire's unassailable might. Sallow blinks, trying to work out what he's seeing. What? What's wrong with it? Trace doesn't need the spyglass to answer him. She knows why the palace glitters in dawn's early light. It's frozen, Sallow. The whole palace. It's completely covered in ice. Dominarium, frozen into a winter palace? The unseen seismic stockpile, swarming with scurrilous scoundrels? What mishaps and mayhem lie in store for the wondrous web? Tune in next time to find out. Same lone time, same lone channel. But before we go into the closing credits, let's quickly backtrack to the outcome of Crater's wreck roll. As it turned out, I needn't have worried about that setup. Crater pushed the roll, burning a little stress, rolled three dice, and got a three, a six, and a six. A critical success. 
that meant increased effect and a complete success for the team. Milestone 3 is complete, just the final warehouse to go. A quick warning here. For the description of this next scene, I'm about to describe some game information that is not known to the characters, and was not mentioned in the last scene. Specifically, who is behind the icing of the palace. But I don't think there's really any harm in doing so. If this is a spoiler, it's an incredibly minor one. So we had a scene shift, and remembering what I mentioned earlier, I finally dusted off my scene start oracle, and asked if the scene started as expected. And the answer was a Weasley, yes, but. To understand that, I first rolled on my new campaign's elements oracle, and that told me that the but related to the war on the League of Free Nations. Intriguing. That made me think of the military getting involved directly, and so I asked, are the military on the streets, or guarding the powder? The answer was no, because. And that immediately led me to the conclusion that the reason they were not on the streets was because the Free Leagues had launched an attack on Kairos. Well, that was a bit of a bombshell. The League were supposedly many hundreds of miles away across the Void Sea, a ragtag band of scruffy rebels, and this was the very capital of the Empire. How could such a thing be possible? Obviously, the answers lay in the oracles. I asked what was the nature of the attack, and got the answer, challenge phenomenon, blighted artefact. Well, I was only aware of one blighted artefact in this tale so far, a certain wintry ring that slipped from Mina's grasp far below the city streets, deep within the underpipes. A ring with the power to create bitter cold. And so I asked myself, if I were a rebel in my enemy's city, somehow equipped with such a weapon, where would I strike? Why, at the heart, of course. Now, this does leave all sorts of unanswered questions. How did the League lay their hands on the ring? Are they working with the cult? If the ring is capable of such if the ring is capable of such power, why did Umajukti not use it in her own war of terror against the city above? All these and more will have to wait, I'm afraid. Perhaps this will play into the story at a future point. Perhaps it's just another component of the background chaos consuming the city, one of countless other stories playing out in parallel to the one that we are following. But, once again, my team have more pressing concerns. Somehow, they have to neutralise a heavily guarded warehouse, filled with enough explosives to destroy half a city district, all whilst keeping collateral damage to a minimum. I haven't got a clue how they're going to manage it, but hopefully we'll all find out next time. I hope you'll join me. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com 
where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to my promotional trailer of enticement. My name is Art the Solo Gamer, and I am the storyteller and game master for a bi-weekly actual play podcast called The Solo Gaming Experience. Each season I use a different RPG system with some solo components thrown over the top of it to hopefully tell the best story I possibly can. Join me on the Solo Gaming Experience. That's the Solo Gaming EXP on any podcast platform near you. I humbly thank you in advance.